The time-honored livelihoods of Andes mountain range herding communities are being threatened by socioeconomic and climactic conditions. And yet the efforts of Mauricio Nunez and the Andean Pastoral Livelihood Initiative are working to preserve alpaca and llama herding and restore an appreciation for the long-held cultural and environmental values that have underpinned this civilization for thousands of years. We really need to recognize that these people are one of the most climate change vulnerable groups in the planet. And it's necessary to increase their resilience to protect livelihoods in the short term. This is Weaving Voices, a podcast that stitches textile traditions, economic philosophy, and climate science into a quilt of understanding designed to transform our thinking and actions, both as citizens and material culture makers and users. I'm Rebecca Burgess, your host of this Whetstone Radio Collective series, which aims to explore the nexus of modern-day economic design and the history of textiles. My guest on this episode of Weaving Voices is restoration ecologist Mauricio Nunez, who comes from the Sacred Valley in Peru. His work focuses on providing expertise to a range of local and global programs focused on mostly the intersection of regenerative agriculture and fiber systems, community governance, conservation finance, and ecological restoration. Nunez has developed a new project called the Andean Pastoral Livelihood Initiative, or APLI. Through this work, with grassroots organizations and different implementation partners, development NGOs, and local regional governments, he works to find intersectional ways to uplift this traditional culture. And of course, all of this work centers on the herders, which are at the heart of the initiative. Equity and justice for this livelihood, basically, at the core. It's been so undervalued, so underserved, so underheard that with the tools and instruments we're engaging is providing a platform, assistance, technical advisory for them to thrive. There's a deep ecological and cultural history of the pastoralist ways of the Andes. And there's a long arc of textile history in this region. And for a bit of context here, In an earlier interview, I spoke with economic anthropologist Jason Hickel, and I thought it might be helpful to understand what these Andean communities' rather recent economic history has been. Hickel writes in his book Less is More, quote, From the early 1500s through the early 1800s, colonizers siphoned 100 million kilograms of silver out of the Andes and into European ports. To get a sense of the scale of this wealth, consider this through a thought experiment. If invested in 1800 at the historical average rate of interest, that quantity of silver would today be worth $165 trillion, more than double the world's GDP. And that's on top of the gold that was extracted from the Andes during that same period, end quote. Nunez says there are cultural values that are shared by the alpaca herder community in Peru. And he shared with me some terms that are used to describe these values. The first is Aini, 
which he explains as reciprocity through mutuality and compensation. This, he says, refers to specific forms of morally grounded cultural economic reciprocity within the context of the Andean rural community. It implies that all elements of nature give and receive to contribute to the harmony of the world. Nunes says another term which is used to describe social collective and unit organizing is ailu, which describes common duties and obligations to achieve equality for members. More than just a construct, it underpins collective land stewardship and social relations within the communities that do the work. And then there's chayincha, which means solidarity through unity and fellowship. This arises in communities in the face of common interests, needs, and responsibilities. And at the core, it's profound respect. So grounding on that and that fascinating way of of engaging with each other as human beings. They're looking to revitalize these cultural values, which have been around for 3,000 years. APLI builds and strengthens these guiding principles. He calls it a fascinating way of engaging with each other as human beings. The textile history and current practice is an expression of these cultural values. The intricacy and complexity of the woven structures reflects the nuance, depth, and complexity of the communities themselves. Each community had a particular style of weaving, and even through that, each particular weaving made a hierarchical visual of how you are on the social scale there. So it was a beautiful, colorful of different textiles and ways of engaging with weaving and mending these ways of engaging with the land. Not to mention the fact that you could pay your taxes with weavings. In fact, that was the highest form of paying your taxes. It's like high-level textile people that there were super specifically developing textile for when the Incas reach across, that was the textiles that were exchanged with. That was the offering. This history spans for more than 3,000 years, and that is still present vividly in our culture. Like, women carry babies in beautiful weavings, and meaning that you're carrying the future there. And men use ponchos still, and this textile make your identity emblematic. For some communities still, we're losing that somehow, somewhat. But when there's deep roots, you see that sense of identity. Beyond just textiles, camelids are a source of identity with the people here. They were a pillar of the Incan empire and economy. He says the Andean world is one of the seven places of animal domestication in the world, but the least understood and known. When it comes to domestication, it's about creating ties. Imagine being 4,000 meters above sea level. It's remote. It was a natural evolution to form a social contract with the animals, and that contract is at the heart of the human identity. If we fast forward to today and look at the current economic value that the alpaca fiber holds, and what this means for the herding communities... Nunes describes that there are some very serious economic pressures creating cracks in the system. We really need to recognize that these people are one of the most climate change vulnerable groups in the planet. 
and it's necessary to increase their resilience to protect livelihoods in the short term. And it's really crazy because everyone talks about the Amazon and not much on mountain landscapes or mountain people. And that's where the water security from cities come from. In Peru, 120,000 families are dependent on alpaca herding, and one million families across the Andes are dependent on grasslands. 80% of them live in extreme poverty. As Nunes explained earlier, textiles in Incan history were used to pay for taxes and used as currency. This precipitous drop in value is very disturbing. He says it's such a beautiful culture that has seen a downward spiral. He points to climate change and problems such as solar erosion. One really interesting, and it's as well in wool, but it's the genetic diversity, like with pressure by selection, whitening of the herd has been 90% white. So we're looking at the monoculture there. And it's really interesting that genetic diversity and colored animals have stronger adaptive capacities so drought resilience, cope to heat fluctuations with this changing climate. Nunes says another issue that he's watching unfold is that the grassland soils are losing water infiltration capacity, unless the communities are becoming less water secure. Human well-being is completely dependent on ecosystem function. All real wealth comes from functioning ecologies. Fiber is seen as a commodity, you know, the fiber... And the meat of camelids across Yamalpaka is really undervalued in the market. I think that neoliberal economy and capitalism is missing big with this vision. We can't get to cope with products from industrial animals or even synthetic fibers that is the hype now, but it's a nonsense across. The challenges facing small flock herders as they try to establish and retain any position within the markets has led to migration out of rural communities. And the abandonment from the fields is a real and present issue. He says they're focusing on the youth with their initiative. The wisdom keepers cannot go into beyond the earthly realm without transmitting their knowledge to the next generation. So there is an intergenerational transfer of knowledge and ways of knowing. And as well, one that goes at the heart of this is like livestock is not just as equity, but a source of identity, you know, like people talk about alpaca as a resource and don't look at the livelihood as a whole. Like when you talk alpaca, you talk families that enable the alpaca to thrive. And I think that's at the core of your question on what really happened there, like yeah, big hype from Englishmen buying fiber, but then, like, what about the families that steward? The industry depends on them, but they haven't realized yet. If we look at the economic situation for today's herders, you can trace the issues back to the export economy and the effect of selling alpaca into Western countries. It has meant that Westerners have, for centuries, defined the value of the fiber. And then you fast forward, Western countries have very recently begun to develop their own concepts of animal welfare. These concepts are just that, concepts. They're very detached from pastoralist ways of life, and also very detached from landscapes and the function of landscapes. 
Still, to this day, we have not seen the voices of the pastoralist community centered in a textile sustainability conversation. And until that occurs, Western markets and concepts will continue to dictate the economic well-being of pastoralist communities. Prior to Western influence and colonization, the textile systems were integrated. From the stewarded landscapes, fiber procurement, dyeing, weaving, all of these processes were done for and by the community. When the selling of the fiber went to communities divorced from the creation of the fiber, it seems that a big door opened for economic issues. So some of Nunez's work focuses on repairing that. First and foremost, this needs to be a viable livelihood in and of itself. If not, the succession is going to be over with young migrating as well as the poverty degradation spiral continues if we don't address it with the bottom line. So I heard this from a Costa Rica conservationist. We need to engage in conservation with a full stomach. The whole conservation community has, well, they've been evolving so far and so forth. Look at now at the intersection of livelihoods, but what we are doing to get into the economy, well-being of the people, we're engaging, like super simple, really. We engage with paying a premium, 20-25% more of the market price. Sometimes they sell fiber for less than the production cost, and that's insane. So we are engaging with some covenants and notes for impact and outcomes. So do you have a management plan? What are the indicators for landscape function? Perhaps, you know, and we have been showing as well how ecosystem function with the economic metrics for livestock production. Nunes says that way we get to the bottom line of the grower. Let's say the pregnancy rates were low and the mortality rates were high. When those indicators are off, and you can point to those indicators as being off, you start to get the grower's attention. Then you can value the perceived loss and put a monetary value there. If the pregnancy rate is 70% and you increase that to 85% and you have 100 alpacas total, that's a big number. They're able to support a feedback loop of information around the mortality rates in alpaca herds back to grassland health. He's seen that these pregnancy and mortality rates are very much directly tied to the kinds of ecological outcomes that they're also trying to see progress forward. We talk their language. We don't go with the landscape function, but it's like, hey, what do you measure? Intended user at the core. So yeah, that's our work mostly on land, perhaps. But for the sector as a whole, because remember, I come from like a, the deep ecological restoration scene, you know? So that's really what drives me behind on seeing landscape function uplift and this and that, but I need to engage at the core. But for the sector as a whole, we're mapping, engaging, and developing and strengthening capacities on the fiber value adding side. That got me thinking about other ways in which incentives can be developed for ecological outcomes. And I naturally, as I do, began to think about the role of regional manufacturing and how that could bring more value to the herders' raw fiber. I was curious as to whether there are specific pieces of infrastructure that Nunes would like to see. Yeah, we're looking at the different verticals. We have like three scales, perhaps, of processing plants. There's artisanal scale, and we're working with public finance instruments, you know, small tickets and producer associations that are already strong to apply for those, and you get 
a small processing plant. We're looking to meet ahead of where they are if and always engaging with the agency and determination on hand to realize their cultures. So if you are growing, we want you to classify perhaps. Is that what you're looking for? And then you get market value. If you're classifying, we can help develop the project proposal for a processing plant, perhaps a small one. If the herding community is classifying based on quality color, if that work is being done, then the mill can do its job. There's more of an impetus to build a mill if you have the alpaca pooled in different colors. We're buying different baby royale and this and that into different pools, perhaps. And that gives a sense to the producer. And by that, I mean as well, like before they are selling, let's turn this into dollars, but they are selling at $2 the pound. Classified, they are selling at four. So it's double the economic just by classifying. He says the initiative is mobilizing the community and they are articulating this work in the development plans being produced by regional local governments. They also have a for-profit that's starting to engage with aligned partners who share the vision. When asked about whether the initiative is looking for any partnerships for the milling infrastructure, Nunes said that this last year there were four small processing plants that began to be financed through public finance, through government. They're building upon that and looking at capacity gaps that still exist. They've been talking with the Ministry of Agriculture, and he says those plans are there, but they need more demand established, which means they need more market access. It's promising to see Nunez's organization asking for capacity building and financial support, and to be able to take the time to organize themselves as a business collective. There's a lot of agreement setting and education All of this takes time. There is support at some level by way of government and sustainable economic funds for technical assistance and capacity building. And he says that government used to have a couple of big processing plants approved, but somehow they just haven't gone through yet. What we're doing with articulating with government now, well, in Cusco, there's second alpaca program, and we are providing monitoring, evaluation, and learning outsourced advisory that weaves with other sectorial finance programs as enabling infrastructure. So that's where the small ticket sizes, artisanal and semi-industrial plants are coming from this year and are going to keep coming from if this gets outcomes, closing gaps on well-being and economic development and so forth. The really interesting part now is how we're partnering with them on... And this is really exciting for us because we're talking with the directors of livestock across the finance, four different branches, finance, cooperativism, business structures, and technical advisory facility. And what they've been mapping is like, you know, there's 52 associations in Cusco, producer associations. Four won the ticket for the processing plants, but there's huge capacity gaps that the government is not implementing said they provide assistance facility once a month, but people need an up-to-date resident in-house in their landscape to get a hold of different things and provide that sharing perspective because it's not like extension is come and go, but it's like, hey, how you invite these people that goes into 
dialogue with the next group that has perhaps implemented this plan before. His plans around governance of grasslands are thoughtful. He says the grazing plans are community-managed, and watershed plans that are in place by law also tie into this work, as do other planning processes. They're also working on what he calls community life plans for embodying indigenous development. He says it's beautiful because it's a reflection process that comes from the people. This refers to any indigenous communities. He mentions those in the Amazon are also participating in these community planning processes. Nunes works and helps to facilitate these planning processes, which lays a foundational strategy, but at the core The work is based on how the community defines wealth and how they see development. So what is this starting to look like in the grassland community? It gives a source of identity because at the end of the process, you have like different projects, perhaps education and sanitation. And on the livelihood aspect, you have like perhaps strengthening the pastoral herding in Manampaki community with this and this and that. So we get this plan and articulate that at multi-scale, at the local government and say like, hey, these people went through this self-reflection process, so please include this in the development agenda. And that's public finance. So it's really enabling a lot because infrastructure is big cost for grazing and land management. So we're looking at moving fencing and water reticulation systems for those people, and that enables a whole different game. I really like the directionality where input is coming from the community and informing plans that then inform how finance is used as a tool to support people. What are some critical next steps for obtaining this vision of the good life? At least for the 20,000 families in Peru who are alpaca herders, who are culturally rich, pastoralist, and traditional livelihood people. For a number of years, there have been numerous alpaca working groups and roundtables, but they come and they go, and the bottom line is nothing has fundamentally changed. At the Pastoral Initiative, he says they're starting to organize landscape-level partnerships based in culturally relevant, context-specific dialogue. So we sit different people on the table, from grassroots leaders women that are in charge of social water governance boards, development organizations, local governments, and we get that landscape development agenda forth. And that weaves with a bit of the community life plans, but that's more of the articulation multiscale. This is across sectors. So with that, and that's the beauty of this, is that we make sure that participation from local communities is transversal and we really work to strengthen the power of these local communities and provide them in those tables with opportunities to participate in equitable decision-making, provide accountability for integrated landscape planning efforts that discuss, negotiate, and develop collaborative action. Nuna says this work is a bit more unique in terms of grasslands. He mentioned there are examples of partnerships in the Amazon, He says it's really interesting when you focus on an aligned agenda to make sure you provide decision-making power, accountability support, voice, equity to the people that depend on these livelihoods. They're determining what they will be accountable to in terms of ecological outcomes, 
and they are determining their goals, and they are accountable to their goals. With my plan that perhaps my agenda is pastoralism, so it really is at the core of not duplicating efforts. If you have a technical advisory facility I can use, get on board. If you're accessing public finance and you have the data I need to write my proposal, share it with me. If you engage with local leaders at social water governance level that are having problems with irrigation, come forth. It's across an integrated landscape plan and management. Across sectors, the community is weaving all of these pieces together. He mentions incentives, like paying premiums, depending on how people are upholding their management plans. He describes this inflection point in the process where the premiums for outcomes kick in and people start to see real benefit from meeting their goals. What is really interesting is we see both process and outcomes. So the enabling conditions shape the pathway for change or transformation to happen. So if you have land management plan, you can go and what we talk, get fencing and this and that, and that will allow you to have perhaps outcomes easier. So if you don't have a management plan, how on earth can you, perhaps it's, <laughs> it's by luck, you know, or it's by really gut sense. So that's on the first level on some levers that we're looking as well as now with the whole payment for ecosystem services jargon thing and I was explaining before it's policy here for those provisioning service and these communities that steward those places provision this, you know, like water, purification, quantity, quality, security, sediment retention and climate adaptation as a whole. There's a whole potential to engage, I think, with living wage for these communities that provide water for downstream cities. And I'm talking metropolis as Lima or big cities as Cusco. So there will be a price premium for the fiber, and then there will be an entity who will pay the community for their ability to enhance the volume of clean water that is provided to neighboring cities. A lot of these communities that happen to roam upstream don't have more than 100 alpacas, and it's really not their livelihood. It's their second stream. They are in tourism and other streams. So how can you strengthen that? and provide a living wage and say like, hey, you keep stewarding this. I know you manage 30 animals. Doesn't make the living. But we know that with your management, you provide water. And that's accounted into the sanitation and we can provide quantity and quality into the water service providers. The challenge there is that these mechanisms need to embody really a bottom-up approach with a strong equity and justice lens for the ecosystem services. It is really not for the sanitation sector, it's for the irrigation of those communities. Taking a strong equity and justice lens for ecosystem services is not easy. I see in the United States that farmers will get very excited about the idea of receiving money for a metric ton of carbon. But the costs to produce the credit are quite high, and the cost that the person auditing the credit receives is quite high. I've yet to see how the credit development process with all of the costs associated with it actually center the grower themselves. It's going to take some real innovation and probably some public funding to pool to support growers to do this work, to be able to receive appropriate value directly to the people managing the animals and not a third-party auditor. What is really interesting is the additionality piece. There's been a couple of dialogues about like people want to provide 
fencing and water reticulation systems as a process to enable outcomes. And that's interesting. My take is like you take your 5% carbon finance project developer cost and 95% is for communities. If not, I'm not engaging in the dialogue and it's over for me, period. There's no way that investors are looking at carbon. It's the next land grab. Like people are buying land for carbon pathways and it's like insane. It's the land grab of the 21st century. It's scary, in fact. For carbon, for biofuel, there's definitely a huge risk in this quote-unquote green growth economy. You can't just keep growing a system and expect that it's going to be able to meet its ecological goals. Carbon credits are just this way for people to extend the growth model and continue business as usual in most cases. It's not often that you see it associated with a company making a drastic cap on their emissions and a drastic reduction in their overall footprint. It tends to be more of a leverage point to keep growing. And that's where the land grab risk exists. This risk is high because they'll be looking for more places to sink carbon. They really need to address the resource use across their business and see their business as a whole system that needs to scale back its impact within the confines of its own supply network. Building upon this, kind of like another lever we see is land rights. Like, this is a major bottleneck across Peru and specifically the Andean communities. We need to avoid land from the fragmentation. And as I mentioned, with land titling and tenure, these producer associations, communities can engage in finance pathways with microfinance institutions, development or agrarian banks for their development plans. And that's a big lever for them to develop their agency and self-determination. And it's a sense of identity as well, big time. Nunes says that those are the levers that will establish the founding building blocks. And then there's investing in infrastructure, which we previously talked about, and how that can add value to raw material and support more income for those producing raw fiber. He says we're not just looking at sourcing partners. We want to build these programs from the bottom up, through public and private finance. The kinds of capital needed to serve the system would be funding focused on justice as a primary goal of the use of the capital. I'm talking here about like self-liquidating equity structures for worker-owned or cooperatives, convertible note perhaps, or other instruments that honor equity at the end to the farmers. How can the farmers own the infrastructure you're building or the process you're building? And any other debt instrument that aligns with revenue-based because lots of the financial structuring is like traditional. In our region, some of our wool has been pooled And there has been some patient capital provided from both private philanthropy and the USDA and others to help our community establish value-added goods from the wool we grow. We're still missing the grower-owned, worker-owned, cooperative milling infrastructure to wash our wool and to add other forms of value locally. We don't have that yet. But we're at this stage where we can pool the wool, at least, and add some level of value to get it into the hands of strategic design community members. Nunes describes that for his community, there is far more investment needed. And this is a global issue across fiber-producing communities. When we reflect on the amount of wealth extracted from the Andes Mountains that fueled nation-states across the ocean, we can recall that European ports received what would today be valued at $165 trillion worth of silver, 
It's a very fair question to ask those countries that led the raid on these mountains. What kind of return is due? And what kind of investment are Andean pastoralists themselves wanting? How would taking this vantage point impact the sustainable fashion conversation on alpaca fiber? I could see how the current model of penalizing communities based on Western environmental auditing processes, which are also expensive, could completely shift. And how refreshing would that be? A new approach could emerge where brands are asking questions to the alpaca herding community about what vision they themselves have for their own future, and really investigating what a co-investment in that shared fiber future could look like. A system of textiles that supports both through relationships, questions, and a commitment to each other. This episode is made possible because of all the people who work behind the scenes on it. I'd like to thank my producer, Jennifer O'Neill, audio editor, Bethany Sands, and intern, Maha Sanad. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder, Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone head of podcasts, Celine Glacier, sound engineer, Max Kotelchuk, music director, Catherine Yang, associate producer, Quentin Lebeau, production assistant Shabnam Ferdowsi, and sound intern Simon Lavendar. The cover art by Whetstone art director Alex Bowman. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemagazine.com. <laughs>